Hello and welcome to a special Oh God What Now emergency cast in the wake of the Bye 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 elections. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me for this special edition is a man who makes every edition special. It is Alex Andreu. Hi Alex. Ah, Jarv, what a sweet thing to say. (laughs) And we also have... (laughs) I've had two hours sleep but that energised me. Yeah, well, look, you can't, you can't tell. You've always got that that aura coming our way. <laughs> and we also have new statesman, political reporter, and famous fluffy cat owner Zoe Grunewald. Hi, Zoe. How are you? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. And so is Peaches. Good. Yeah. Good to know. Right. Let's set the scene first, shall we? So, in Selby and Ainsty. Labour's Keir Mather won a historic victory with a majority of four thousand one hundred and sixty-one. In Somerton and Froome, Liberal Democrat Sarah Dyke won with an 11,008 majority. And in Uxbridge and South Ricelip, Steve Tuckwell won as the Conservatives held their seat with a majority of 495 votes, which is, is very convincing if you ask me. Now, you two are here to deliver all of the political nuance that we need, and I'm sure you will bring it <laughs> in abundance. And I want you to, when I let you... But to my mind, can we set the record straight early on here? This is not a mixed set of results for the Conservatives. Any way you look at it, it's a bad set of results for them. It's a trouncing in one seat, that's that. A Lib Dem gain, which we know is a party that appeals to moderate Conservatives who want to ditch the bin fire, and then clinging on to a seat because they banged on about Ulez, which simply will not work in a general election in every seat there. So I just think saying it's mixed simply because it's been mixed between three parties is a very simplistic way. It's only mixed if you look at it as a as a snapshot there. So that's I've put my cards on the table there. That's my my take on the whole thing. Alex, am I being gaslit by the headlines here? Or am I correct that this was just bad, 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 bad for the Tories? Um, no, I think I think it was a spanking, actually. Um, it, the only frame of comparison is that the Tories spent the last month saying we're going to lose all three of them, we're going to lose all three of them, yeah. and lose them badly. There is no doubt about it. These were three incredibly safe Conservative seats. I cannot emphasise enough how safe three Conservative yeah. seats these were. And Rishi Sunak is touring Uxbridge um, this morning saying the next election is not a done deal. I mean, if as a football manager, your most hopeful message to the team is it's not definite we're going to lose 3-0, we might just lose 2-1. I think it's time for the board to have a vote. Winning MP um, Steve Tuckwell, I think he's called, uh, in Uxbridge said, let's face it, Sadiq Khan has lost Labour this election. That's what he said. He he did not mention Rishi Sunak once in his speech or his pledges. So... This doesn't seem to me like a huge compliment for the general running and direction of the party. But then again, I don't like them. And when it comes to that as well, I mean, Sadiq Khan is who they seem to keep mentioning as this bogeyman figure. Are they completely aware he's not going to be running to be prime minister? It's not going to be Sadiq Khan when it comes to a general election. It just seems like a strange, they keep 
using that. Yeah. And it's like you need to take the legs out of Keir Starmer if you're going to be tackling a person, surely. Yeah, I think in order to win a by-election, your campaign has to be oppositional. Um, yeah. And so I think uh, Conservatives will be looking in places like Scotland and Wales and London right now thinking, is there a strategy a little bit to portray us as the opposition party in these sorts of areas? Mm. Um, but in my view, what happened yesterday, there's only one interpretation of it. And the narrow path to victory that their election strategist, Levido, has talked about just got a whole lot narrower. And anyone that says otherwise, I think, is fooling themselves. Zoe, what's your top line reaction then? What do you reckon? Um, so unsurprisingly, I agree with both of you. I think these are terrible results for the Conservatives, no matter how they try and spin it. Um, and I think what we're seeing at the minute from Rishi Sunak, you know, saying the election isn't a done deal. This proves yeah. it. The result in Oxbridge proves this. Well, it's just it's just trying to motivate the troops. You know, yeah. if he comes and he says, God, that was awful. We should just give up now. You know, that would go down really badly. So he's got to pretend that there's something to cling on to. And luckily that, you know, 495 seats is something to cling on to. But I mean, these results are kind of like, you know, they, it's kind of like a school sports day. Everyone gets a prize, you know, Lib yeah. Dems, you get a C and you get a C and you get a C. And it's just, you know, they don't really mean an awful lot when you try and extrapolate them to see what would happen mm. in a general election. The thing about Uxbridge, and this is obviously what uh, both you and Alex have touched on, is that they were campaigning on a local issue, which was Ulez, and that will not happen at election time, although people might be impacted by that. There's going to be much more kind of vibes-based, Keir Starmer-based voting. Um, so these are bad results. Um, the one thing I do think is quite frightening is that, and I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but my concern is that not only are the Conservatives going to use this to kind of rally the troops, but they're also going to try and paint this as a... a you know, paint Labour into a corner over the ULES thing and potentially environmental policy going forward. And obviously, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what that will actually mean in practice. But I just really think Labour need to stand firm here on this and not be spooked by this, you know, not row back on their environmental pledges because there is a way of selling it to the electorate. Um, So my one concern from this is that it will spook Labour a little bit. And we've already seen, you know, Angela Rayner out on the radio this morning doing a bit of talking down ULES and doing a bit of talking down Sadiq Khan. Um, and I just think we need to be, Labour need to stand their ground and keep their cool yeah. um, and, and see that these are bad results and they will be remembered as bad results. You mentioned Sunak there and how he's kind of rallying the troops. Is a little bit of it, though, maybe feels to me for his own sanity that it gives him some slight hope that he might lose the next election, but maybe he believes in not as quite a historical trouncing as he hoped. Is there some, you know, if if... If the Tories genuinely think, look, we're probably going to lose, but maybe we can make things so bad for Labour that it's going to be they'll have one term and we can come in. It's seen that kind of, you know, hoping there that this is sort of his for his own image and his own control there, damage limitation for him. He seems like a very self-centred politician in a lot of ways to me. Do you think that's what he's saying there? Yeah, I think he probably will take this as an example of how the Conservatives can win if they find something to attack Labour on. And and Ulez was a good example of this. So yes, I think he'll be pleased to be presiding over not three defeats, just, you know, just the two. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But 
you know, having said that, this again, this was a local campaign and the campaign run by the candidate, Tuckwell, he didn't mention Sunak at all, barely, no. barely at all in his whole campaign. He didn't mention him in any of the leaflets handed out. No. This was very much a, I am a local candidate. I am from this area. No. I care about this area. He distanced himself from Sunak. So if Sunak's going to make out like this is a historic, you know, success for the Conservatives and he's brought them back from the brink of oblivion, well, it's not, it's not no. quite true. Well, I'm going to mention the B word now of Boris Johnson, and it is quite a stark difference there when you consider that all in the 2019 intake, it was very kind of Boris Johnson. They wanted to tie themselves to a leader. And then, as you say, with Rishi Sunak, he's just had he's had no mention, which really does mark a, a stark contrast for him, which I think he probably dislikes. For a final take, I give you the resurrection of Ian Dunt, who's not on the pod anymore, but is still bloody swearing all over the place on Twitter. He said... Interesting by-elections results. In terms of next year's general election, they don't change anything. The Conservatives are set to lose and lose hard. They just lost Selby for fuck's sake. A 20k majority overturned on a 23% swing. It's historic spanking territory. Alex, that brings me to specifics when it comes to the numbers of historic spankings here. Uh, Get down to the numbers for me, please. What are they like compared to the last results? And give me your best sophologist's spiel, if you could. Look, the raw figures and the data is is freely available out there. I did a little bit of um, adding up that's not out there, but I think is useful. If you look at these three by-elections collectively, the government went into them defending a collective majority of 46,500 votes and an average share of 56.2%. They came out with a collective deficit of 14,674 votes and an average share of 35.2%. That is inescapable, right? That's what happened over the three by-elections last night. And to pick up the point that Ian was making, um, even if you look at the Uxbridge um, swing, the Conservatives would still lose the next election. They would still be out of power. So even on the best available sort of scenario for them, we're talking about the quantum of damage. We're not talking about them holding on to power. We're talking about whether Labour will have a hung parliament to deal with or a small majority or or a large majority. None of those uh, scenarios, if projected nationwide, and the usual caveats, of course, apply, that you can't just do that, but none of them point to the Conservatives holding on to power. There is a lot of uh, massaging of the figures going on. I'll give you a very funny example. Rhys Mogg was on the Today programme, and he said that Sarah Dyke won Somerton and Froome with fewer votes than the last Labour Democrat MP there. Um, so she won with 21,000-something votes. He won with 28,000 votes. But this was on a general election turnout of 74%. She yeah. won on a on a by-election turnout of 44%. If we look at the Conservative candidate in that last election, who happens to be Jacob Rees-Mogg's sister, Annunziata, she got 26,900 votes. The Tory yesterday 
got 10,000. So if you want to go on the, on just on the raw figures, go for it, but they're not particularly, um, complementary to the Tories. Another thing I want to bring up to do with Uxbridge and what Zoe was talking about, um, I think, and I have said this for some months now, Labour were overpriced in Uxbridge, okay? So Uxbridge, as recently as 2010, was a Conservative constituency by a margin of 25%. John Randall had a majority there of 25%. He handed that over to Boris Johnson, who in the 2015 election pretty much maintained that majority. He won by 24.2%, all right? By the 2019 election, Boris Johnson, because he was such a polarizing figure, had cut that in half. He won that uh, uh, seat by 12%. That doesn't make it a marginal seat. That doesn't mean it's easy for Labour to grab. Last time Labour held that seat was 1966, its predecessor, Uxbridge. So I think Labour was slightly overpriced in Uxbridge. Sure, Euless was a big deal. But I think looking at the position, as it were, when uh, Johnson was the um, candidate there, gives you a really distorted image. I think if Johnson had stood again in Uxbridge, he would have lost and he would have lost big, by the way. The fact that he stepped back is what allowed them to run backstage, put a sort of Groucho Marx glasses, moustache and nose on and come out and say, we're a completely different party. We're against (laughs) you, Les, now, which Boris Johnson introduced and my government legislated to make the targets compulsory for local authorities. Nothing to do with us. Well, it feels like the best Um, asset you can have as a Tory MP right now or a Tory hopeful is to be completely fucking anonymous. If you're just someone that no one knows who you are, that is the best thing you can do. Putting yourself front and centre in any way is pointless. I thought you were going to say a set of Groucho Marx glasses. (laughs) It's got to be worse than that. You just have to be like, you know, when you sign up to like Facebook and you don't put a profile picture in yet and you're just a blank. Just be a void. If you're just a complete void, then people might go, you know what? Conservative. I feel conservative. But if you're a person, if you have any character at the moment, it, it will just be negative connotations mm. is all it feels like to me. It's, mm. it's, it's a, a bizarre, bizarre place to be at after we've come from somewhere where the Boris Johnson era to me was so marked by being, be a big bombastic character. And that's just, it's imploded completely. You mentioned Rhys Mogg there. You've been watching all the rolling news coverage. Who else's reactions have stood out to you? Greg Hands. Um, has had another. <laughs> has he shared the letter now? <laughs> another <laughs> shocker of a morning. <laughs> he actually the the entire uh, Today program studio burst out laughing at his very first sentence of his interview, <laughs> where he said, "I think something along the lines. I think the standout result is Uxbridge in these elections." And everyone just laughed. It wasn't to mock him. It was just a, a spontaneous thing. But but the thing I picked up on um, is slightly different. He's been going around pointing with glee to how poorly Labour did in Somerton and Froome and the Liberal Democrats did in Selby and Ainsty. Actually, 
this is his worst nightmare. This should be giving him sleepless nights because it shows that parties are getting better at targeting their resources without making some formal pact, and voters are getting smarter at voting tactically. The combination, actually, of Labour doing badly in Somerton and Froome while the, the Liberal Democrats trounce the Tories and the the opposite happening in Selby is is the most worrying aspect of these by-elections for the Tories. Yeah, the Lib Dems doing well to me. Just I, you know, I'm not I'm not the biggest Conservative Party expert or strategist in the world, but I would say it's about the most obviously bad thing you can have happen to con- the Conservatives once the yeah, Lib Dems the, are doing well. It, the if combination they are the natural, them, the closest. The combination of them is awful because it makes it almost impossible to triangulate your message, right? Yeah. Because you're losing these blue wall seats to someone offering a really different thing and you're losing the red wall seats to someone offering a very different thing and your targeting is almost impossible for a national election. It's almost impossible to fashion a message that will head both those challenges off. You just have to become sort of obnoxious fog. That's kind of all the <laughs> Conservative Party really can be, it feels like to me. They're just rolling in like a really horrible a, horror doing film. doing a good job on the obnoxious fog front, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're pretty dominating on that, aren't they? I completely? also just feel like um, Greg Hans, you know, he really is doing his utmost to put a good spin on things. This is what he does. Yeah. But he really should just go sit down in a dark room and have some time off. Yeah. You know, I just feel like he tries so hard to put a good spin on everything. And sometimes you just think... Greg, no. there was no need for that. Yeah, <laughs> Those the yeah. letters to Keir Starmer about just up oil. Just yeah. just just sit down. It's fine. He feels like he's doing like, you know, he's really just he's in character. Yeah. And he, he will stick to yeah. it. He's very committed to that role. It's kind of like, you know, when Sheila Booth goes and lives in a forest <laughs> or something. <laughs> for a role. Yeah. That's just Greg Hans yeah. right now. Hans, the performance artist of the Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That is really <laughs> Zoe, as our de facto young person correspondent today, uh, Johnny Mercer seems to have put his his foot in it with the the youth, doesn't he? Yes. I mean, I never take what Johnny Mercer says that seriously. Um, That's a very good rule. Yes, I think generally um, it's a good piece of advice. Listen, he basically made a dig at uh, Keir Mather essentially saying at 25 years old you know is he too young to be a politician I think he said something about it being like turning parliament into the in-betweeners or something which is just an offensive thing to say because Mm. young people are disproportionately being impacted by the brunt of conservative policy at the minute and this just shows exactly what people think the Tories think about young people which is that they don't deserve a space in the political conversation and I think it's really misjudged Um, unless that's in the Lords yeah, uh, then they can go in there yeah yeah if you're you know spad in the Lords that's fine but uh, don't don't come into our our no no yeah Um, so I just think it's it was really ill judged and it it also just came across as a bit spiteful um, and a bit bitter I think graceless it came it came across as graceless Can you imagine can you imagine if a left leaning person had made that point about an election can you imagine the hand wringing and pearl clutching 
on how we're saying those voters are stupid and don't know what they're voting for. Or if we said it about an old person. Mm. That's the yeah. other thing. It feels to me if you just, if you kind of went, because that happened around the Brexit narrative, there are people who went, you know, older people who will not be inf- impacted by this for as long are the people voting for that. And mm. there was this whole moral row of going, you cannot judge the value of someone's vote based upon mm. their age. But it seems like young people, we can just, just put the fucking boot on them yeah, like well, all the time. I mean, and it, everyone's kind of, okay. We saw whatever. it a bit, didn't we, during COVID, where young people were expected to make a ton of sacrifices for, to, to save mostly an older population. And then, you know, the Tories will reward with them with conversations like this i also think it's funny because somebody james heel um who works with the spectator pointed out on twitter that gladstone entered parliament when he was 22 lord <laughs> salisbury was elected at 23 churchill balfour and ben were only 25 when they sat in the commons and david Steele was 26 so um you know if he's going to start on that on that kind of conversation perhaps he should look at his own party yeah, as yeah, well yeah. and maybe he'd change his mind so um i think it goes back to my initial point which is don't take anything johnny yeah. mercer says that seriously yeah. we will fight them in the creches <laughs> is the way we, should, uh, <laughs> we should go here uh he said that it's like you know Kim Affa was like putting a chip in people who will parrot <laughs> labor lines has he not met you know the, the prime minister for one if you want to talk to someone who just parrots things or any of the 2019 intake of Tory MPs as well well it's just a silly thing to say because don't you want to encourage a certain level of discipline in your party where people yeah. are you know in line with the with the party line exactly um, but yeah I mean absolutely the intake of you know, Tory MPs, all the Johnson supporters who tripped over themselves, you know, turned cartwheels to support yeah. Johnson and tie themselves in knots over things. So, yeah, I mean, it just stinks of hypocrisy, really. And I just, I think it's getting a lot of media pickup because people are pointing to what a ridiculous yeah. thing it is and how offensive it is. He, he, he also said that uh, he wasn't authentic, that mm. he'd just been flown into yeah. a constituency and had been to Oxford University. And, he was born in Hull, wasn't he? He grew up in yeah. Hull. I mean, it's I I just I don't understand this attitude that you know someone from the area, by virtue of their education, they suddenly become inauthentic. But someone like Lee Anderson, who was a fucking Labour councillor until three years yeah. ago, <laughs> is somehow more authentic yeah. as a Tory. You also kind of can't say that they're too young and haven't had enough life experience and then also say, but they've been away from this place for too long. That's really having your cake and eating it. You know, he's he's 25. Yeah, he moved away from Hull for a little bit, as lots of young people do to go to university. He hasn't been out of university for that long. He you was can't elected. use that to... To he have was a go elected. At him. He was elected by a crushing majority. That is the end of the argument. He was elected. And he was elected only for a year, by the way. Charlotte Owen, a junior um, Johnson advisor, age 29, has been elevated, not elected by anyone, elevated to the House of Lords forever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the main, unfortunately, the main thing I know about Keir Mather is is his age, to be honest, because the, the Tories have this way of dominating the media space and their attack lines cut through and what you what you hear. So starting with him, what are these new MPs like? Mm, so Keir Mather, yeah, so he's 25, Hull born. 
He is younger than New Labour's 1997 election victory, which there's a lot of talk about uh, that at the minute, obviously. So that'll be interesting <laughs> to see. Um, he used to work for CBI and he used to be a researcher for West Streeting. Okay. Um, and I think in that sense, he is, you can see a little bit of from the West Streeting school of All politics. Right. You know, he is, um, he's a bit of a Blairite. He's very competent. He's charismatic. Cool. You know, he's got that sort of uh, sense to him. And he seems very popular with the party. Obviously, he's young. He's he's um, yeah, yeah. charismatic. He's ambitious. It'll be interesting to see how he gets on in the party. But you know, I think it's really interesting. He's he's joined in this historic by-election. He's twenty-five years old. This is someone who could potentially go quite far in the Labour Party, yeah, I'd yeah. imagine. So definitely one to watch. Then we've got Steve Tuckwell, who is the um, who is now the new Conservative MP for Uxbridge. So he's third generation Hillingdon, born and bred. Uh, he is a long-term councillor of Hillingdon. He is the chairman of the HS2 Hillingdon Group. And his campaign strategy, as I said before, was dominated with just sort of being a local community figure. No mention of Sunak. Lots of mentions of the local mayor talking about local issues. And that's why, and you know, from that we can extrapolate that Uxbridge really was a local issue by election. And then we've got Sarah Dyke, who is the new Lib Dem. Uh, MP in Somerton and Froome. She uh, mostly campaigned on sort of farming and rural issues. She grew up locally. Interestingly, I had a little look at her website earlier. So she really tapped into the kind of sleaze and scandal element of Westminster, which I think tells you a little bit about that constituency, perhaps, which is maybe how politically active the people there are or how interested they are in in Westminster. So um, that's, that's really interesting, I think, that she kind of lent on that to sort of disregard the Conservatives a little bit and tap into maybe that frustration that we see that people feel like the Tories have, have let them down in that in that area. So three very different candidates campaigning on three very different sort of issues, some local, some national, some more kind of vibes based. Does that show the issue, you know, the the front that the Conservatives have to have to fight on? They, they, they've just got too many fires going at the minute, surely, haven't they? Like there is, you know, there's been firefighting and then they're is where they are now. Does a variation of candidates kind of indicate to you that on a national scale, you you really can't please everyone because there are just too many problems to solve, Mm. which they would like to. Yeah, I think, I mean, I always have to check myself because being a political reporter in Westminster, you can get caught up with the sort of internal sleaze and scandal stories and and miss whether they're actually impacting the electorate as much as, say, the money in their pocket or whether they can get a local hospital appointment. Um, So it does seem like the Conservatives have multiple uh, fires to put out, basically. And I think the summertime result shows us that people are still annoyed with the conservatives they're angry they feel like they've been let down um as well as things like inflation cost of living uh public services so yes i think they've got multiple um things that they need to address before the next election obviously sunak had a little bit of success with the inflation figures earlier this week but whether they're actually going to come down enough and whether people are actually going to feel like the Tories' plan are working and the five pledges yeah. are hitting home, I think is a completely different question. And we'll only really see whether people feel like their plan is working, you know, at the next election, whether it's May or November. The Tories, it feels like no matter what, are going to continue to be as as gung-ho as ever, because they simply don't care about throwing bullshit up against the wall and hoping it hoping it sticks for them. But then Labour, to me, feel quite timid. As though you mentioned that earlier, they seem like they might sort of 
shrink back again. Alex, this wasn't a a three-seat wipeout, and that doesn't diminish the fact that it was still a good set of results. But if Labour had been bolder, could it have been? And do you think sort of the two-child policy, for example, and pandering to maybe small-C Conservative voters, it it does pose a risk to Labour if they continue to be quite so meek on so many issues? Do you know, I I genuinely can't answer that. And I think Labour will have to do quite a lot of deep diving into um, the data for that constituency to find out the answer. Because I think there are two legitimate forces pulling them in opposite directions. And I genuinely don't know which one was more dominantly at work here. All right. Mm. So one lesson you could take from a constituency like Axbridge is that the National Party's appeal, for the National Party's appeal to be capable of being disrupted in this way by such a local wedge issue, probably points to their lead in the polls being more fragile, more superficial than than they would like, which would tend to push them in the direction of being more bold, of making a more confident offering to the electorate, right? The other way to interpret that result is that despite all the evidence, despite the last 13 years, despite everything going on, voters still see Labour as a tax and spend party. And that is still a dangerous issue for them, which makes them more timid. And I think they will have to dig into the Axbridge result and find out which of those two forces were at work in order to decide whether they keep walking this fine line, whether they become slightly more assertive about their program, or whether actually they need to scale back even more the spending commitment. Yeah, there comes a point to me it would feel like there, you know, there's this there are these voters in the middle and there are voters who are soft to the right who you can try and win over, but you can get to a point where if you if you take your base for granted, it's just going to demotivate them and make them them not come out and yeah. that sort of number of votes to me feels a little bit like is there could potentially be some of that that there are just people who want to vote Labour and want to but you know th- I mean, this week to me should have just the been all... turnout, The Exbridge turnout was in line with the other two so yeah. it doesn't feel like uh, of course no. within that you could have Tory voters more motivated by the ULES issue and yeah. Labour voters. They, I mean, like I said, they will have to deep dive into that. Money, it's not talked about enough, I think. In, in such a fractious political landscape, I think what yesterday's three results actually show is that any seat is up for grabs, provided you throw enough resources at yeah. it. And so... What parties have how much money in their coffers and how many activists on the ground to go knock on doors come the next general election, I think will be really hugely important and nobody's talking about it. Because basically, if a party can recreate this kind of level of activity that they can pump into a by-election in their target seats, they will make a way like a bandit. Zoe, this, uh, you know, there's a level of wanting to win over hearts and minds in politics, obviously, and, and win over people. But I do think you have to look at it kind of objectively sometimes and cash in the fact that there are sometimes people 
who they're entrenched in their position and that's that's it. So with this whole Ulez thing and Labour perhaps actually considering they could change tack on this for for any logical reason, is that just basically they actually should maybe accept that there are some people who do not care about the environment or they don't want to do anything for the environment that will impact them and therefore just don't worry about them. Does you know that that sounds counterintuitive to to disregard some of the electorate, but is there actually if they are just looking to be astute and win, they have to kind of accept objective reality of people who will mm. not support things they want to support. I think this environment issue is going to be a big one and I think what Labour really need to do is to work on their messaging because I feel like a lot of people are afraid of environmental measures such as ULES because they're worried that it's going to impact them even more in a cost of living crisis, that it's going to mean industries close, it's going to mean jobs get more difficult, you know, it's going to be expensive, they're all going to get have to get home installation programs and things like that. So Labour need to work on their messaging, which I think they were doing a little bit, but then rode back on when they rode back on that uh, $28 environmental pledge by basically talking about it less because they don't want to spook people. What's really interesting about the ULES thing is actually, I think it's nine out of 10 cars in Greater London are already compliant. It's fairly possible that a lot of people who were spooked by this actually wouldn't have been impacted by at all. And I think there's a messaging problem there. I I don't know if Labour have put in enough resources to actually show how this doesn't impact people as much as they think. And actually, the majority of people in London are in favour of ULEZ as well. So there Mm -hmm. is a strong argument that's press forward. Don't get spooked, press forward and work on your messaging. But, you know, as as, uh, Alex said, I do think Labour are fighting against, you know, a really, really heavy tide of people just wanting to criticise them for spending, Mm. criticise them for pushing things on the electorate that's going to take a lot of money that aren't going to be popular. And I think the environmental policy stuff is a big example of this. So I really think, I mean, I think there's probably no more pressing issue of our time than the environmental stuff and the climate mm-hmm. crisis. Um, and I think, you know, we really hope that Starmer will, will keep his nerve and keep all this, you know, in his mind when he comes to the divine designing manifestos and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, you're right. You can't change everyone's mind. Some people no. are just going to be anti-net zero. And should Labour, you know, accommodate those people? Well, arguably not. Yeah. Well, it's, it's another, you know, on the on the thread of just accepting the playing field as it is, the Conservatives are happy with scaremongering. Scaremongering is going to happen. That is bread and butter for what they want to do. And they will scare the electorate. Labour can't be scared by it, though. Hmm. Keir Starmer can't be scared by scaremongering. Surely he has to realise this is what it is, hmm. and nor should anyone else with actually within the Parliamentary Labour Party be, be scared. I don't think it's that simple. I don't think it's that simple, um, Jacob, because... The problem is this, okay? The Conservatives, since 2020, when they started sliding in the polls, they've been looking for their new Brexit, okay? They've been looking for something that connects this disparate franchise of voters that they managed to put together. Sir John Curtis said something incredibly interesting, even though he was interrupted like 12 times because there was stuff coming in. But he said something very interesting on the BBC last night. And he said that if you look at the issues voters care about, you know, economy, cost of living, uh, environment, they are issues that are vote changing. Okay. Immigration, people care about it an incredible amount and very passionately, 
But actually, if the Conservatives managed to stop the boats, that wouldn't change voters' uh, decision, provided the economic issues were still going the wrong way. And so he advised the party to change tack. And what worries me is that green issues tie more easily into a notion that Labour are going to tax you and spend it on green crap when really there's no reason and you'll be poorer under Labour. And that seems to me like a more universal message that can bring together that disparate franchise, especially since the right-wing press is right on board on this. They will jump right on it. And you have... Fringe parties like Reclaim, Reform, UKIP, they're also very hostile to all the the environmental measures. And so I think that represents a real danger. But I agree with Zoe. I don't think that the solution is to back away from it. I think the solution is to be front-footed, to show character on it, right? Because everyone does complain that they don't know what Keir Starmer stands for, This is actually a great opportunity for Keir Starmer to set himself as leading on an issue that actually is important to the vast majority of the electorate. Like, and trust that if he leads on the issue, if he, if he puts out the right message in the right way, if he leads in other way, in other words, voters will follow. Yeah. And surely there is a way as well to frame it as, fiscally logical look over to europe and what is happening at the moment and how the expense it must be not just in the 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 tragedy of it but of of fighting forest fires that we are seeing in greece and then we're also seeing workers having to say we can't work it is too hot for us to work and there you know that is going to become more and more regular and could begin to happen to britain if we do not tackle this problem so that's surely another way of saying like actually look at the money this this can only if this gets worse this will be a very expensive and very real and very painful problem for us all and will hurt everyone's pockets at the same time too looking to you as my crystal ball alex as i as i regularly do uh-huh. How do you think this might change Are the narrative? Are you saying I'm fat? <laughs> <laughs> I would never say that to you, Alex. I give you so many compliments. Come on, don't be, don't be needy on the liberty. pod. <laughs> uh, how is this going to change the narrative going forward? All of these results. How do you? What are you seeing coming out as we go? Is it just going to, or is it going to stay the same and get more entrenched and just the same shit but worse and harder? Okay, so it should change the narrative. <laughs> Weirdly, I don't think it will, because I think the people who are currently leading the Conservative Party, they seem to be saying the message we took from these three by-elections is keep going at it. Like, the plan is working. And I just don't understand what fucking universe they think that. And ordinarily, I would say that's just spin. But I don't think it is. I think they lack the intellectual capacity to change course. So I think they will keep repeating the five pledges. They will keep trying to twist them in some way so that by next year, 
if you stand on a hill at sunset, sacrifice a virgin and sort of tilt your <laughs> head 20 degrees to the left, it looks as if Rishi Sunak actually made one of the five. Um, and I think that's their strategy. Oh. It shouldn't oh, be. Oh, the reality it, of it's the idiotic, <laughs> but, but I think that's, gonna, that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, politics is improved by all parties being on their game, actually. And one of the encouraging things about yesterday is that I looked at all the winning um, people, and they all seem like decent people to me, actually. They're not, you know, they're not abrasive. They're not, they seem to me like decent local politicians, basically. And and I long may that continue, because like I said, politics is improved by all parties being on their game. And my fear right now is that the conservatives are so off their game, they will be led into something that does lasting damage, for instance, to the environmental cause, that makes us more of a pariah internationally than we already are, and and really means that we dig deeper into the hole, both economically and reputationally, that we are in at the moment. Zoe, what are you keeping an eye on? So there's a few things I'm going to keep an eye on. The first is what's going to happen to environmental policy from both parties. I really want to see Labour stand firm, look at their messaging, but I will be interested to see how the Tories begin attacking it because I think they will. Yeah. Uh, the second thing I'm going to look at is the Greens because the Greens are nibbling away. They're, you know, they are doing quite well um, for, for the Green Party, which is obviously a relatively small party, <laughs> small, small but mighty, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they are nibbling away. They they got um, the the third highest share of the vote in in each seat, and I think that especially if Labour move away from environmental policies, they might nibble a bit more. So it'd be yeah. interesting to see what's happening with the Green Party. Um, and because I am, you know, a glutton for punishment, I will keep an eye on Boris Johnson because I yeah. just want to see how he reacts to this and whether he sees the win in Uxbridge as some sort of coded, you know, desire from the people of Uxbridge to have him back you know he says he's gone from politics but for how long so i'm interested to see his next daily mail column i saw one environmental activist proper hardcore environmental activist today saying that greens who voted who did not vote for the labor candidate in axbridge have engineered a situation where now both major parties might start to step away from their environmental commitments Mm. Um, and I think maybe there's something to that. Mm. Alex, I know you're a little bit tired today, so I've got one final question to ask oh. you about your, your energy levels here. <laughs> New rumour is that November 2024 is uh, when Sunak might be considering a general election. The same month as the US elections, are uh, you in any way, shape or form feeling mentally prepared, spiritually, physically prepared for that? I might just take the month off. Um, <laughs> but you know what? The old rumour was January 2025 uh, or December 2024. So I'm going to stick with my guess that it's going to be spring 2024, presuming that Rishi Sunak and the people who advise him, who are quite experienced, are not complete idiots. Yep. They will look at the summer stretching ahead and you know, loads of boats crossing again 
And surely, surely, they will realize that there lie lies a lot of peril for them and call it for May 2024. Mm. So that's my prediction. And with that, that is the end of this special edition of Oh God, What Now? Alex, thank you for joining me as ever. My pleasure. And Zoe, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Oh God, What Now? We'll see you next time. Thank you.